is caught. It's history. A Cardinals four-game sweep of the Cubs and Wrigley for the first time since 1921. St. Louis back in the postseason. First time since 2015. A Wrigley Field massacre. And how sweet it is. And Vader launches one out to deep left. Into Big Lynn and he hit the painting. He hit the painting for Fred Bird. You've got to be kidding me. Hi, welcome back to Conversations with Saruti. This is your host, Ben Saruti, and today I'm with Corey Sanzone. He is a former collegiate baseball player, and uh, you know him, hopefully, on Twitter. If you don't, you should follow him and interact with him. Uh, Corey, you want to uh, introduce yourself and your Twitter account? Because I totally forget where the three goes. <laughs> That's fine. Uh so, as you said, Corey Sanzone, um, if you haven't, guys haven't followed me or interacted with me, um, I'm just as loud and as boisterous in life as I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is S-A-N-3-Z-O-N-E. So my last name just split as in half-ish as you can get uh, for a seven-letter word. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I'm, I'm just happy to be here and talk a little bit of baseball. And, man, it's, it's a good day to be a Cardinals fan. It is, and uh, that'll take us to what we're talking about today. Today, we get to discuss the Nolan Arenado trade. Um, Corey was uh, wanting me to do this like the moment it was broken, but I like to be a little more prepared than that as a teacher, and so I wanted to see all the contract uh, negotiations play out first, actually get which prospects went in the deal because um, it did change pretty greatly from the initial reports. Um, and so I'm kind of glad we waited, um, but the wait has not killed my excitement factor. How about you? I oh. mean, I'm just pumped. Still. <laughs> I'm, 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 I am beyond giddy. Like, like <laughs> I said, it's early. I'm like bouncing off the walls, little kid type of excitement. Um, and, and it kind of brings me back to, I mean, not quite the same player. I mean, I, yeah, maybe, uh, I remember as a younger me, when the cards traded for Jim Edmonds and that kind of excitement is the same type of excitement I feel right now. Like, Holy crap. What? We gave up nothing. And we got who like, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, so excited. I mean, like Nolan Arenado is even better of a player than Jim Edmonds. I'm not trying to no knock to Jimmy because I personally believe dude should be in the hall of fame, not just Cardinals hall of fame, but Oh, we can we can go down that uh, rabbit hole in another episode because I want to stay positive. Um, so uh, let's talk about what this deal actually was. It turned out to be uh, the Colorado Rockies are going to receive left-handed pitcher Austin Gomber, who I am um, I'm excited for him. He's going to get an opportunity to be a starter. I don't know if he was going to get that here. Um, poor guy can't catch a break though with curveballs in Colorado unfortunately but that is the major headline piece heading towards Colorado and if you would have told me that we could get Nolan Arenado for a headline piece of a mid-rotation starter 
Um, I would have laughed you off the phone like uh, British probably should have done to John Mozalak. Oh, you mean and then um, threw in another fifty million on top of it? Well, yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> so um, the second biggest piece is probably Elahuris Montero. Um, he is a guy who is arguably top ten in the Cardinals system. He's a third baseman who, prior to reaching Double A in 2019, absolutely raked at the minor league level. Um, 2019, he had some injuries. He was like a 550 OPS guy in the minors, and that um, that that's the second best piece headed their way, probably. Um, the the last piece, the throw in, I think, was. Jake Summers, who's a right-handed collegiate pitcher um, or drafted out of college. I do not know nearly as much about him. I'm hoping to maybe get Kyle Reese on to talk about these players a little bit more at some point, but work would not allow today. Um, And then the other two pieces are the two that I think are going to be the make or break pieces for the Rockies in terms of this deal. I mean, I don't believe that you will look in hindsight and see this trade as a win for them. And I definitely don't try to judge trades in hindsight. I try to judge them in the moments when the GMs are making them. And it definitely doesn't look like they're winning the trade right now. But even in the future, I don't know if it will. But I think it kind of hinges on the other two pieces. Uh, One of those is a very young shortstop named Mateo Gill, the son of Benji Gill, former big leaguer. very toolsy, lots of raw power from what I gather from uh, Kyle and other pros- prospect guys. And then right-handed pitcher Tony Losey. Um, and he is a guy who uh, maybe ends up in the bullpen, but was going to be tried out as a starter in the Cardinals organization. He reminds me of Lance Lynn. Shut it down. Yeah, Tony Losey's a big boy. Um and you know what? If he turns into a Lance Lynn out in Colorado and Austin Gomber can be a middle of a rotation piece and one of the hitters works out, maybe maybe it does become worth it for the Rockies to save $150 million. I don't know. Um, your thoughts on just that portion of it, what's going to Colorado? Um, I, I thought this was going to take a lot more, especially when you start talking about like the money kicked in, which we'll get into, but just from a prospect standpoint, I thought this was going to take at minimum one of the top three. I didn't think there was a shot in hell that we were going to get him for what we got him for. Um, I do. I, I really like Gomber. I've always really liked him, even when he was in the minors. I've really liked his curveball. I thought he would have done really, really well in St. Louis, given more time, given a longer shot. Uh, I've always been a very big proponent of him. Um, I'm nervous about him in Colorado, but he's a gamer as, as much of a pitcher as can be like he, he, he just, he's kind of a bulldog kind of pitcher. And I think he'll find a way to make it work as best as yeah, you I think can. He's one Colorado. of those that he takes. I don't think he's one that takes things in stride. I think he takes things to heart and he uses it to fuel him. Um, so hopefully this kick in the butt with the trade just fuels him to be the best version of himself as a pitcher. And, and he really does well. And honestly, I hope, um, I hope he does well. It's not like, you know, like it's funny when guys get traded some other teams, I'm like, God, I hope they suck there because I don't like the team. I've always liked the Rockies, you know, like they have that little bit of like, I'm not saying they're like a number two team in the NIL for me, but I've always been a fan and I've always rooted for them a little bit. So and I like Gomber, so I want him to succeed there. I really, really do. Yeah. Um, so 
this actually just came to me while we were talking, but I think in terms of like, I, I, I was like you, I really thought that this trade would hurt more. Um, I feel like John Moselak had a rough stretch there and I'll, I'll get into this more in my next episode, but in terms of trades, in terms of free agent pickups, I think we all think he's had a rough stretch, but I just got to thinking about the last three big trades were the Ozuna trade, the Goldschmidt trade and this one. And I feel like the hurt from the pieces leaving has gotten lesser with each one. I thought that the hurt for the Ozuna trade. I hated was the Ozuna trade. I hated the I did Ozuna trade. I did too at the time and I still do. And the Goldschmidt one I felt like was the right amount of hurt. I felt like Arizona could probably go, yeah, we got the better of that deal at the time. And the Cardinals could look at that and go, we might have given up a little too much, but you know what? It was for the right reasons, and we would do this trade 10 out of 10. And this trade, oh my gosh, the Cardinals do this a million out of a million. <laughs> honestly, I saw I saw somebody tweet it, and I honestly, I, I texted one of my buddies and, and forwarded it to him. But you know how we as Cardinals fans, and you see it all over Twitter, as when another team does a trade, well, why didn't we beat that offer? Why didn't we beat that offer? The rest of the league has to be like, what on earth like how did we yeah. not beat that offer <laughs> right right that's that's exactly true um for anybody who hasn't seen what charlie oh maslow Ma, um oh my gosh i can't remember his name he was just on with bernie or he just did scoops with danny mack he just switched over charlie marlowe um charlie marlowe just put up a hilarious video about the about the Arenado deal. So everybody should check that out after you're done listening. Um, so let's get into the other stuff. Um, monetary details. Arenado's contract got restructured, which was why this trade took so long, I think, going through the union. Um, he has still paid $35 million in 20, for the 2021 season. Uh, he will only get $15 million of that this year. Um, and that money will come from the Rockies. The other $20 million is going to him in deferments later. And all of that money is also coming from the Rockies. The St. Louis Cardinals are literally paying him $0 to play for them in 2021, which is quite incredible. Um, he does have an opt-out that he kept for after this season. So the Cardinals could get a season of $0 from Arenado, and he could leave after this year. And they would give up five players uh, with, I believe, 28 or 29 years of service for one season of Nolan Arenado. Now, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen based on his comments in his press conference. Um, the Cardinals also had to add in opt-outs after the 2022 and I believe the 2023 season as well. Those are two years in which he'll still make $35 million. He will make $35 million again in 2024 if he opts in to be a Cardinal after each of the next three seasons. We get to the fifth season, he's only owed $32 million. In the sixth season he's here, he'll be only owed $27 million. And then he is uh, extended for a season. In 2027, he'll get an extra year here. It'll be a seventh year of this contract added on at $16 million. And that money, if it makes it that far, will be paid by the Colorado Rockies as well. So the 51 million is broken up between 15 million for this year, 20 million for the remaining money owed this year to 
Nolan Arenado through deferments, and then $16 million for the very last year. The Cardinals are basically just on the hook for the five middle seasons of his contract, totaling close to $160 million. Um, all right, your take on monetary-wise. What's so going on there? You, we just signed... Uh, the same contract as George Springer for Nolan Arenado. Basically. I'm happy. Like, how could you not be? I mean, I don't, yeah. and no offense to George Springer. I, I think Springer is a very, very, very good player. But Nolan Arenado is, knock on all wood, more likely than not going to be Hall of Fame baseball player. Yes. And, and we got him for the same price as George Springer. I, I, how, how can I not be excited about that? And I mean, yes, the opt-outs are certainly something that, I mean, I know that his comments were that he's plans to be here for a long time. I do think he will be here for a long time. I think there's multiple factors as to why that is the winning culture more than anything, but he has good friends on this team. I think that's a big factor as well. Um, that will only, you know, those friendships only grow. And I understand he had good friends on the color on the Rockies as well. But uh, I mean, the opt-outs are certainly like uh, we could lose him, but we got him for free this year. Next year, he doesn't really take. I mean, adding him on is the same as losing Dex and Carp's contracts. Almost literally, right? Like exactly. Uh, is it like, Carpenter, Carpenter's 18.5, Dex is 16.5. That adds up perfectly to 35, right? Right. So, I mean, we we, we pushed a year where our our we, we got him and our salary didn't go up at all this season. And then next year, it doesn't affect it really any different from this year. Um, that- all right. So that leads perfectly into my take on all this with the monetary reasons. I'm pretty sure that um, I would imagine the Cardinals – tried to get them to take Fowler or Martinez or Carpenter just to, just to offset salary a little bit. I'm wondering if that additional 16 million for that final year is because they didn't want to take on that money. You know, I'm wondering if they pushed that 16 million to 2027 to say, Hey, we'll worry about that money later. Um, I, I, that's just a thought that popped into my head. Well, I think um, I'm not entirely sure because that, that final year. So the way these contracts work, when you're talking about giving up, no trade clauses, giving up, um, you know, moving of money, deferring money, all that has to be met with present value um, for, from a union standpoint. Otherwise it can't be done because then the player's giving up stuff to make it happen, which isn't allowed. Uh so that 16 million, I think would have been in there. I think that added year was added from Arenado's standpoint and maybe even the union standpoint and his agent because of making up the concessions in other ways, like the deferred money. Um, yeah. But, okay, sorry. But, I think I worded that badly. Go ahead. Keep going. But then the, I think then the Rockies turn on that was, we don't want to take one of these players. We'd rather just pay that last year. I think that they came in yeah, okay. and paid That's that way, I mean. but I think it was added simply because they have to add to the contract to maintain the value of the contract. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I think you worded that much more eloquently than I was trying to. So well done. <laughs> um, as far as the players go, I feel like um, the initial reported group, I feel like this group that we sent them hurt just a little bit more 
um, but not much more. And as I said earlier, I think Losi and Gill could be the two that make or break it for them. But overall, still just a lopsided trade for the Cardinals. Um, let's get into some concerns because there aren't many, honestly. Um, let's go to the concern I know that you feel like you can calm me down on the most first. So Arenado had a really tough, tough season last year. Um, but he had a shoulder injury. Now, we know from the past with Scott Rowland and others that shoulder injuries are not good. Um, why do why, why you, you kind of talked to me about this at one point, but why are you not so worried about this shoulder injury with Nolan Arenado? I agree that shoulder injuries are very tricky when you're talking about structural damage, when you're talking about ligaments and uh, joints and stuff like that, that is where it's very, very concerning because it's very long healing. It's very hard to fix surgically. There's just the amount of movement there is in a shoulder is so intricate. It's a disaster, but all right, and Corey, one more thing real quick. Why, I know that you are qualified to talk about this. Can you tell everybody else kind of why you're able to speak eloquently about these types of injuries? I, well, first, let me just say, his injury was a bone bruise. I have experience with bone bruises. Um, I, I had a bone bruise in my hip when I was playing uh, myself younger, and that thing took an eternity to heal. And there was nothing you could do from a therapy standpoint or – rehab that would really get it there. It just, the bone had to heal. Um, but the reason I would say, I feel like I know how it feels to have, when you start talking about structural problems, um, for those that don't know, I am a, my, my real job is, uh, I'm a fireman and on a call that I was on this summer, I pretty severely injured and partially separated my shoulder, my non-throwing shoulder. Uh, which he injured his non-throwing shoulder. And mine was a significant separation, um, not to the point where I couldn't move and needed surgery, but bad. And I, while I'm not a pro, still play baseball on a pretty competitive level. I play in a collegiate league still uh, in the summer, uh, even though I'm not even close to being of college age anymore. And um, <laughs> I hang pretty well, and I had one of my best offensive seasons pretty much playing through what is a, a completely nagging and uncomfortable injury. If it was my throwing arm, you're done. And I think that's kind of the case with his, like, like with the bone bruise, it would have been, I'd be more concerned if it was in his throwing arm. The good news is it was just a bone bruise. There wasn't a problem with the AC joint. There wasn't a problem with any ligaments. There wasn't any tears. This is something that just needed to calm down and heal. And that just takes time in an off season. Um, I don't think there would be any reason whatsoever he won't come back 100% because there wasn't any separation. There wasn't anything that needed to be surgically fixed. This is something that's – there was inflammation because of the bone bruise. The bone bruise will heal on its own, and he will be back to – I would be astonished if he's not back to normal because it's not a more significant injury. All right. The second concern I have out of three – uh, we're going to go least concern to most concern here. Um, the second thing I'm a little less worried about than the, than the third is he's had some road troubles in Colorado. Um, now, when we're talking he's had some road troubles, we're talking about a near 200-point difference in his OPS, um, and that is significant. Um, the reason I'm not too concerned about those is we've seen that out of Colorado Rockies players before, Matt Holliday had similar road splits. DJ LeMahieu 
went to New York prior to that. He had similar road splits in Colorado. Um, there's been plenty of work done. Mike Petriello has a wonderful article at MLB.com. Um, I just saw one at the pitcher list this week about this. Um, I saw one more somewhere that I can't remember in the past week, just outlining how um, how road troubles at Coors as a Rocky or from Coors away from Coors as a Rocky does not necessarily lead to the road OPS simply being their OPS uh, once they leave. Um, and in fact, that sometimes road troubles are even worse in Colorado than anywhere else. Um, and that's actually the most times road troubles uh, are worse for Rockies than others due to a myriad of factors. Um, so I'm less troubled with that. I'm more troubled with going from Coors, which was such a flyball haven. And as a flyball hitter, Nolan Arenado going to Bush, which is a completely different animal when it comes to fly balls. Um, I am doing some work behind the scenes that I've been looking at for over a year that, um, that shows me that Bush is ridiculously hard to get production from fly balls. In fact, the only place Bush gets production from fly balls is directly down the left field line. And it doesn't matter who you are hitting home players, away players, um, obviously, unless you have special power. Um, and Arenado may have that special power. Bush Stadium was not a problem for Albert Pujols. That's the person who people want to bring up, though. And Albert Pujols was kind of like Mike Trout in that he was a Hall of Famer five years into his career as long as he could make it 10 years, basically. I, I don't um, think it was a big problem not, for Matt Holiday either, though. Right. But Matt Holiday's power numbers did drop off about 20% from Coors to St. Louis. True. Um, and I could see that happening. Um, I could see uh, I could see that happening quite easily. Um, if you just go by park factors, uh, singles are 9.9% more prevalent in Colorado. Doubles are 24.5% more prevalent in Colorado. Triples are 43% more prevalent and homers are 21% more prevalent over Bush. And so you could see numbers drop off incredibly. Um, I have a question for you but, on that, though. Yes. So he plays a significantly large portion of his road games in Dodger Stadium, in yes. Petco, in yes. San, and Francisco, in San Francisco, which are all miserable. And then he's now going to play a significant portion of his road games in Wrigley, in Miller, in the tiniest ballpark on the planet, a great American. Yes. I mean, the only one that's really also kind of sucks is PNC, but guys can hit some bombs at PNC. So, yeah, I think it's kind of like St. Louis. You got to turn on it pretty well. Right. Um, so, yeah. So here's my. Yeah. Yeah. So I was actually going to go there next to turn this into a positive. Um, so while his 81 games a year at Bush are going to come in a much worse environment. Many of his road games are going to come in a much better environment. You're right. Um, so uh, he has hit in Milwaukee. Oh, like a 1,200 OPS. Yeah, it's, so it's 76 <laughs> plate appearances with a 1,300 OPS. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and in St. Louis, he's been a lot better than 
than his away line even. In St. Louis, he has 98 plate appearances, and he's at about an 850. And you're talking off of very good pitching staffs the last eight years. You're going against the Cardinals, whereas now you're going against – other teams like I mean that's exactly I mean, if anything we could say about the Cardinals and I will always applaud them is their pitching has been phenomenal for a decade I mean yes there have been up downs of a couple players that don't do as good but as a whole their staff is very good and they're good at limiting home runs they've always been good yes. at limiting home runs always been good at that and so him for him to have an over 500 slugging and an 850 OPS in Bush lifetime is very good um, in Cincinnati, he's had 92 plate appearances there with an over with a 370 on base and an 825 slug. Um, he has actually struggled a bit in, in Chicago and Wrigley. He's got under a 300 on base percentage there. Um, but he does have an but he does have a slugging of 495 and then he's been Wrigley's been a weird field though because you can catch Wrigley on days when you can forget about hitting the ball in Wrigley and then you can catch I actually you can I catch actually where you pop it up on the infield and it's a home run so like it just depends on when you when Colorado goes to Wrigley that year so it, it's such a weird field I, I almost give Wrigley a little bit of a pass Yep. So I'll, I'll go two more things here and then I'll let you talk some more. But um, so the Chicago National League, the Wrigley Field line, I definitely agree. And I ran out of time. I really wanted to take a look and see when he played his games in Wrigley, if they were April, September games, you know, or if they were summer days with breezes and all that. But I, I just ran out of time. Um, Pittsburgh. He has a miserable line in Pittsburgh under a 670 OPS. Here's the funny thing, though including total career. So uh, Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh and at home against Pittsburgh up, up in Colorado, his line is over a 900 OPS against them. So that means at home, he must've had like an a like, 1100 or 1200 OPS. Now, here's, the, here's the best part of that. Listen to this line against the Pittsburgh pirates in his career. He has a 327 batting average a 369 on base, a 538 slugging, and a 908 OPS. You ready for this one, though? That's the worst he has done against any National League Central team in his career. That's insane. He's better than a 908 OPS against the Cubs. He's better than a 908 against Cincinnati, and he's better than a 908 against Milwaukee overall. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so... Hopefully, I've adequately upplayed him at this point after my concerns. I mean, mean, don't get me wrong. I I also have the concern of leaving Colorado, but there has been quite a bit of evidence of that Coors effect of it drags down their road splits. And I get it. Like, you're, you are, you, I mean, part of being a hitter is knowing what the ball is going to do, or at least being able to make an educated guess as to what the ball is going to do. So if you spend 81 days of your games of your each year in your career, knowing a curveball breaks X, Y, Z, I mean, you're talking millimeters of a difference is all the difference in baseball. And you're used to it breaking this much. And then half of your games, you go somewhere that's down at sea level and it breaks. Oh my gosh. You see an Adam White, Adam Wainwright curveball, the first pitch of your plate appearance away from Coors. Exactly. Like, so it's it's dramatically it's so dramatically different that you i mean all of baseball you have such a minute amount of time to make decisions 
and then the rest of it is just your natural reaction and your body's muscle memory going into effect. So when you think it's going to do one thing, but it does another because you're at a different altitude, that's going to affect things. So I expect that maybe his home OPS will go down. Not maybe. His OP, home OPS is going to go down. It is. There's just not a question. But I think he'll catch up some of that loss with how much his road OPS will increase. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. All right. Um, so I, I think we've adequately put that he's going to be a top five bat. I, I call I call top five bats, meaning top five bat in the Cardinals order. Um, I, I think he's going to be a top five bat in the National League. And that could be. That could be. I'm not going to try to make that proclamation on this podcast here, but <laughs> that's one of the best things about this trade is we got a guy who is going to be a top five bat in the Cardinals order. You can slot him in basically in any of those five slots you want. Uh, me personally, I'm going to hit him fourth, but that's just me. Um, the second of three things about this trade that I think make it the best is that the Cardinals let a two-time gold glover in Colton Wongo and somehow got better. Their, in, their infield defense is not going to get worse. I'll, I'll put it that way. It's not going to get worse this year than it has been for the last couple of years even when Edmund was at third and Wong was at second, um, which that's incredible to me. Uh, I did not see when Wong left, I did not see how the infield defense wasn't going to take a significant step back. And this trade is the only way basically that that wasn't going to happen. I would say so it took a significant step forward because I hope you are about to go into it or if not, I'll, I will certainly say it. Go ahead. The defensive run saved that we are gaining at third base is staggering. Staggering. Uh, you are talking over Matt Carpenter, not Tommy Edmond there? Oh, I'm talking about just... So I, I saw a stat that since Arenado came into the league, I think it's 120 defensive run saves he's had since he started. Like, yes. you can, uh, since he That's started, right. the aggregate of St. Louis Cardinals playing third base is negative two. <laughs> so, That's a fantastic stat right <laughs> I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. And I'm a huge Matt Carpenter fan. If you can ask anybody on Twitter, I have pounded on the drum for that guy for years. I, I love him. He's one of my favorite players. He, he will go down as he will go down in my memory as one of my all time favorite players. I love the way he plays the game. I honestly, I feel a little bad for him when this happened, but I was like, well, but it's Nolan Arenado. So right. I don't feel that bad. Um, um, by the way, I will round this out for you. Uh, even if you look at the second and third best players by DRS since uh, Nolan Arenado came into the league, Manny Machado has 88 at second. And Matt Chapman has 81 at third. Remember, Nolan Arenado was at 120. Yeah. Um, we don't need to get into that Matt Chapman's only played a few years and all that, whatever. Um, we'll just brush that under the table. But uh, here's the thing. De no matter what his bat does, defense doesn't slump. And I, I have probably watched over an hour of defensive highlights from each year of this dude since we traded for him. I, I just I can't wait to watch him play third base. Like regardless of what he does with the bat, it's like it's like yeah. he I I I 
almost pause to say this, but he is even more exciting than Scott Rowland was at third base, which is amazing to say. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the third thing I was going to mention, so after his offense, after his defense, that the Cardinals with Yadier Molina likely coming back, with Adam Wainwright coming back, um, I don't think Adam Wainwright will get into the National Hall of Fame, whereas I think Yadi will, but they are both faces of the franchise. And what the Cardinals needed was that next face of the franchise. And they're hoping that, uh, you know, that Goldschmidt being here, that he won't fall off and he can still be that face. They're hoping that Carlson turns into that face of the franchise. But right now, Aaron Nato is that face of the franchise type. Um, he might be able to extend the streak of how long the Cardinals have had a Hall of Famer on the roster. Or not just the roster, but I, I think on the roster goes back into the 1940s. But if you talk about on the in the organization as a manager or a player, you have to go back to the 1800s or early, maybe I think it might be 1907 or 8 before you get to a Cardinals team that did not have somebody traveling with the team that's, where you they didn't have a Hall of Famer present. That's future Hall of Famer. I mean, like that's that's a that's one of the things that makes being a Cardinal fan like I don't want to say snobbish, but like unfair. It's unfair. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> All right. So I know you and I are both a little tight on time today. We've already gone for just over 30 minutes. I would like to end with, and I came up with a couple options for what my batting order would be right now. I don't know if you have thought that through. Oh, I have. I have. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then how about I'll give you one option and then you can give me yours and then I'll end with my second option. And this has been one of the largest struggles for me this past, actually the past two off seasons has been, I don't think the Cardinals have enough top five bats, guys that I consider a top five in an order hitter. And with Wong leaving, I feel like he was the best leadoff hitter candidate that we had. Um, I still don't know that we have enough top five bats and that's what's throwing me for a loop. And so uh, I do try to build my order in a sabermetric way, just for people that are listening and hearing me or seeing me talk about this for the first time. So I know the old school says your best hitter hits third. Um, I am more new school when it comes to that. I want my top hitters hitting second and fourth. I want my next best OBP guy hitting first. And the fifth hole is actually as important to me as the three hole. Um, and so here are my initial thoughts. So I would have Tommy Edmond and no, sorry, let me say that again. I would have Harrison Bader and Dexter Fowler in a platoon where Dexter Fowler bats against righties and Harrison Bader bats against lefties. Um, against right-handed pitching, I would have Fowler one, Goldie two, Carlson three playing center field since Bader's not in. Arenado four, DeYoung five, Edmund six, uh, your left fielder seventh, and Yachty eighth. Um, 
And I think that could be a fine order. Uh, Dexter Fowler, even with his struggles the last two, three years, has a, about a 350 on base against right-handed pitching. Um, honestly, I love Dex. I think he's a great dude. Um, I thought it was the right guy at the time, although for too long, kind of like people did with Carpenter, extending him early. Um, but I don't want to see him bat against lefties anymore. I don't want to see him come up as a right-handed hitter. So against lefties... I would bat Edmund first because I love his swing as a righty. And then I would stick with my Goldschmidt, Carlson, Arenado, DeYoung in the middle, and then put Bader for Edmund in the six hole, and then keep my seven and eight the same. And that way players know where they're hitting when they come to the order or come to the ballpark. Um, except for if Edmund is the only one that switches. And I think he can do that. Uh, he's coming up as a righty in one situation, a lefty in the other. Uh, he has to have a kind of different mindset a little bit anyway. And so I don't mind him being the one to make that switch there. Uh, what's your preferred order, sir? Um, let me ask you a question before I get into it. Um, quickly, okay. uh, where do you put, if there is a DH by some chance, I don't think there will be this year, but if there is, where do you put Carpenter in that lineup or whoever you DH in that lineup? Okay. Um Honestly, I think that my DH would be by committee to start. Um, I think I would plug in Carlson in right. Um, I would plug in Bader in center. I would plug O'Neill in in left. Fowler and Carpenter can battle it out at DH for me. Um, I don't know where I put them. Uh, Maybe six or seven in the order at that point. Um, uh, You know what? It might just be Fowler against righties leading off. Carpenter against righties leading off, depending on who's playing that day. And then against lefties, shoot, against lefties, it might be whichever outfielder needs a partial break that day. I get it. Um, but um, I think at that point, I, I go ahead and make it a make it a three-man outfield of youth and defense. And Thomas is my fourth outfielder, and Fowler and Carpenter don't need to see the field very often at that point. I get it. Um, from my, my lineup standpoint, um, I would say I'm more of a traditionalist in that regard. Uh, I personally, I, I do get the whole batting. You get best guy second. I do understand that, but the way I would form the lineup, if I was Mike Schmidt or Mike, um, uh, thank you. Sorry. I've, I've been thinking about Schmidt all week because of, uh, third base, third base. uh, my fellow's Mike Schmidt, Schilt, I would do it Fowler at leadoff mainly because of his on-base percentage. I, I do like Edmund. Uh, I really like him a lot, but I like him as a, as a guy that lengthens the lineup because of I, mean, I, I enjoy his speed, but he just doesn't get on base enough for me. Um, mm-hmm. He's too reliant on hits rather than being able to walk, which I understand the whole, like, oh, I hate that phrase, but like a, whoever said a walk wasn't as good as a hit couldn't hit. No, if you can walk, you're on base. So... I'm good with walking. Uh, I like get on base to lead off a game. I was actually just having that argument the other day with somebody. And here's the way I put it for the on base average debate. Um, if nobody's on base, a walk's as good as a hit. Um, if, unless it's a homer, basically. Right. Um, if somebody's on first base, uh, OPP is just as good as average there too, because unless it's a certain double, a triple or a homer, He's not scoring anyway. If people are in running in scoring position, get a hit. A hit's better, a hit's better than a walk for sure. 
Um, I agree. That's a good way to put it. But I would say overall, especially from a leadoff standpoint, I care about what they, how they, I care about that they get on base rather than how they get on base. Uh, okay. So, okay. So keep going. So I, I would have Fowler leading off. Um, I personally would have Carlson hitting second. I think he is a very good candidate for the two hole with an aspect of if you have Fowler, or even if you do have Edmund as a leadoff, both of them have enough. Fowler's not exactly fast anymore, but he has enough speed that he can go first to third on a single to right field, which most of Carlson's singles are going to be to right field. Edmund will, without a doubt, go first to third on a single to right field. Mm-hmm. Um, most likely, both of them can score on a ball in the gap from first base. Carlson hits a lot of line drive doubles to the gaps, both the, mm-hmm. both gaps. So he mm-hmm. is. He's not your typical home run hitter. He will hit home runs, but he is a line drive, more of a line drive hitter. So you're going to see a lot more doubles, I think, than home runs out of him. So that's why I like him in that two hole. You get very, very, and he gets on base at a decent clip per his minors career, um, that you could easily have two walks. You could have two singles. You could have a walk and a double. I mean, you can get a lot of, a lot of dynamics going with those two at the, at the beginning of the lineup. Then I like Goldschmidt at three from, I mean, it's Goldie and Arenado at four. Um, I think that's your best lineup. I honestly, I think you could flip either one of them third and fourth, but Goldie's been at third. Arenado has hit at in fourth in the past, even though he has hit in the three hole as well. I, I think it'd be fine. Either one of them three or four. Um, DeYoung after that, which I think DeYoung is truly on deck to really bloom this year because of the fact that it's not as much on him. Hopefully he finally has a healthy season and we've seen flashes of what he can be in the past. So I think putting him in that five hole, he's a good RBI guy. I like him there. Um, I, I would love to say that Yachty would be at the bottom, but we all know better than that. Yachty is going to hit after DeYoung. If he's in the lineup, he's hitting sixth. Okay. I, I guarantee it. I mean, it, it's Yachty. He, he, this, we've seen it in the past. He is going to hit. He is not hitting eighth or ninth. He just, he's not. So I, I know better than to, like, in my mind, prepare for that. Yachty's hitting sixth. Um, then I would put either Edmund or Fowler or whoever you have rotating essentially out of that Lead-off one spot after that and I would finish it with either Bader or Thomas or O'Neill or whoever your final Other outfielder du jour. Yes. All right. And if the DH does come, it sounds like you're a carpenter proponent in that spot. Where does he fit in your lineup? I would put him, I would try me personally, I would try to put him sixth, then Yachty seventh. Um okay. But I'm not opposed to either one. Generally speaking, seventh comes up a lot with RBI possibilities. But I do think that what what if there's one thing I will say a lot, I appreciate greatly about Yachty, and I feel like it's a very underappreciated thing, is he is very, very, very good at situational hitting. He's very good at making sure the ball gets put in play in the direction it needs to to make productive outs. So personally, I don't really know from a sabermetric standpoint where that seems to happen the most. But wherever that needs to happen the most is where I would put Yachty because he's good at getting the ball in play somehow in the direction it needs to go. I, I right, love so to find out that, what it is, but 
That absolutely leads perfectly into my second lineup. So I'm going to take over if that's all right. Sure. So with Yachty being that kind of guy, with Yachty being the type of guy that 80% of the fan base in St. Louis is going to say he is a clutch player. Here is my other option for our lineup. I want the top five in my order to be consistent. I'm leaving Carlson off against righties and lefties, hitting Goldschmidt two against righties and lefties, DeYoung three against righties and lefties, sandwiching him between Goldschmidt and Arenado, Arenado four against righties and lefties, and then asking myself the question, my dad always asked this question about a five-hole hitter. This is actually why he loved Scott Rowland in the five-hole. But who do you want to come up first inning, two on, two out, make or break the beginning of this game, right? And who's going to drive that run in? Yachty. Is it Yachty? Is it Edmund? Is it Bader? Is it Fowler? Is it one of the other outfielders? It's Yachty. And while from a statistician, statistician standpoint, I don't think I ever really want to see Yachty in the five hole again. From the gut feel standpoint and from the clutch standpoint and from the baseball player standpoint of knowing situations, I want Yachty in that five hole. Uh, my sixth hitter is going to rotate Edmund against righties, Bader against lefties. My seven hole is going to be consistently my left fielder, whoever that is. And then my eight hole is going to be Fowler against righties and Edmund against lefties. I like so it. that's my other option. And I really hope the Cardinals can find some way to pick up a top five hitter that they don't have in their lineup right now because I would feel much better sticking whoever that is at one or five to help us out <laughs> than what I have listed. But I am not going to complain because if you can take away anything from this episode, it is that we got Nolan Arenado on the St. Louis Cardinals. Thank goodness. This has been years in the making, and I'm just glad that you and I got to talk about that. Today. Me too. I cannot <laughs> wait to see him in a Cardinal uniform. I Oh, my gosh. I, I, I'm already like, when are they coming to Pittsburgh? Because that's the closest National League field to me. I need to go to a game. Like, I need to. Have you looked? Are they in Cleveland before they are in Pittsburgh or in Cincinnati they're, before they're Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh? I think in May, and they come to Cleveland in July. But the problem is, is I'm actually going to be on a family vacation when oh. in Cleveland. So I'm gonna miss the. How, how does how does your wife feel about changing the family <laughs> vacation to a different no, week? Honestly, <laughs> I don't. I don't mind. I love PNC. It is the most underrated baseball park in the whole league. So I have no problem. Oh, I I have never been in, and just from the outside, I love it, and I can't wait to get there for once. It's, it's so. the best view in baseball. I I can't understate that enough. Cool. All right. Well, Corey, thank you for joining me today. I look forward to many episodes of of uh, conversations with Saruti uh, with you uh, because I just love talking baseball with you. I appreciate it as well. I, I'm always happy to come on anytime you want me. Awesome. Well, uh, fans of the show, I hope you continue to come back. I hope that we are earning your listen. And uh, until next time, have a great one.